0: German text for this afternoon is Psalm 20. Psalm 20 will be our new psalm of the month. So we, uh, first Lord's Day of the month, we turn our attention to the psalm we're going to be considering throughout this month and, and singing each Lord's Day. Let's hear God's word, God's holy, inspired, and infallible word as we find it in Psalm 20 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. Ancient warfare was a terrifying ordeal. Armies consisting of tens of thousands of troops would gather on a battlefield and would all face each other. They would be decked in various armor and weaponry. Banners would be waving in the air, identifying the various armies and the groups within the armies. On both sides, troops would be yelling and taunting at each other. Some soldiers would be terrified as they look, looked realistically at the prospect of their own death. Others were eager and zealous for what they were about to do. And strong armies would have horses and chariots. Judges 4 speaks of the Canaanite armies at that time having some 900 chariots of iron. And these would be pulled not by the calm, gentle horses, like the the calm, gentle horses you might find at a fair or, or a zoo, These would be pulled by uh, wild and strong and fierce war horses that were known for courage and might on the battlefield. And these chariots we, we read of throughout Scripture would have been like the tanks of our day. They've been very strategically important in warfare. They would be pulled by two horses, and often two men would ride on them, one to drive the horses and the other to have a mobile platform to shoot at the enemy with his bow. Some chariots even had had great big side blades to cut down foot soldiers attached to the wheels. Ancient warfare would have been a terrifying ordeal. Now, imagine yourself as an Israelite soldier in the days of King David. Your army doesn't have any horses. Your army also doesn't have any chariots. And this on religious conviction. Because Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen says, But the king shall not multiply horses for himself. You as a soldier in David's army are, are a foot soldier, and you're standing there with your, with your sword. Maybe you have a spear. Maybe you even have a shield. You uh, are surrounded by your fellow soldiers as well, and you could be terrified at the wall of horses and, and chariots all lined up ready to charge at you, to trample you down, to, to slice you in two. And yet, you're not terrified. The question is, why are you not terrified? Most sane people would be ready to to run away, run from the battlefield and seek some safety to save their lives. But you are not terrified because you remember the name of the Lord your God. And you have a firm and fixed trust that God will indeed save his anointed. You have such courage on the battlefield because you've just gathered together You beseech the name of God. You've just prayed the, the prayer we find in our text, Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is, is likely a, a psalm that was sung right on the eve of battle. It speaks in verse 1 of the day of trouble. And that day of trouble, while somewhat ambiguous when we first consider it, it's given that added clarity by what David speaks of in the rest of the song. We read of banners being set up in verse 5. We read of horses and chariots being gathered together in verse 7. And of people falling down in verse 8. This clearly describes for us the, the sights of an ancient battlefield. Now, you might be wondering why. We're considering uh, an ancient war song, as, as it were, here in, in the 21st century. We're, we're not about to embark on uh, a battle. Uh, we're all certainly not going to embark in, in ancient warfare anytime soon. But we need to understand the reality that physical warfare in ancient Israel was a type, it was a shadow of the spiritual warfare we as God's people conduct today. Each one of you is engaged in warfare. You are daily fighting, you are daily battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are to wear the arm of faith described for us in ephesians 6 you are to watch stand fast in the faith be brave be strong as paul encourages you in first corinthians 16. and as you engage in your spiritual warfare you also need a war song to sing and psalm 20 is such a song for the people of god the song that directs our minds to king jesus who grants us grace and courage in our spiritual warfare. And Psalm 20 is a help for us in that it reminds us who we are fighting for. A soldier doesn't fight for himself, necessarily. He fights for a king. And We see this in the prayer of our text. The very evident subject of this prayer is not the individual soldier. The soldier isn't praying for himself, even though he's just about to confront the enemy. No, the soldier is praying for his king. Notice the word use of the word "you" throughout this song. This man prays for a singular you. This isn't a, a plural you. This is a singular you, and this is a you that takes great primacy, primacy over everyone else. This is a you that encompasses one's whole identity, such that the individual soldier soldier views loss of his own life of no consequence because he understands the importance of, of the you that he is fighting for. The identity of this person is far greater, far more valuable than anybody else on that battlefield. This, the importance of this use supersedes any mere man. No man can, can say, well, my life is worth more than yours. Because of that, this prayer isn't just a prayer for King David. It was ultimately a prayer for King Jesus, the Messiah. While the ordinary uneducated soldier might, and this is a very big might, have viewed this prayer as simply a prayer for David, yet we, are the, we who have the full revelation of God understand that David was a type of Christ. David... Came oh, sorry, Jesus came from the family of David. He was born in the city of David. He was the Messiah that was promised to David. David was that type of Christ. And I said it might be a big might that the average Israelite may not have seen this, this Psalm as ultimately being about Jesus, because Psalm twenty gives us indication that something much bigger is happening here. This isn't just a prayer about King David and, and King David's life. You see this in, in verse 6, where a very direct mention is made of God's anointed. We read there, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. If you're familiar with uh, your Bibles, you, you will immediately recognize that anointed In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word there is Messiah. This is referring to the Messiah. And in some sense, people would have understood that, well, David in some sense is the anointed one for our particular time period. David was God's anointed, God's anointed king. But they also recognized, the average Israelite would have recognized that... There was much more going on here. They would have recognized that there was one greater than David who was to come. And this comes out for us in the last verse of this psalm. Where the people say, save Lord, may the king answer us when we call. Notice right there that the people aren't praying to King David. Even though David is, is king. And so the people of Israel look past David, they look past him to their heavenly king. They recognize that there is, yes, there, there's our earthly king here. But there's also a king in heaven who is going to answer our prayers. David's not going to answer their prayers here. It's ultimately God who is going to answer when this people calls. And so the people here, they ask the king of kings and the lord of lords to answer them looking past King David to their heavenly king, to the anointed one who was going to deliver them from all their sins and distress. And it becomes even more clear for us that this is a prayer for the Messiah when we remember the human author of this psalm. And I read the, the psalm a few minutes ago. I read that superscription read that because the superscription is part of the word of God. And we read here that this is indeed a psalm of David. David authored this psalm under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if David penned this psalm, surely he joined in the singing of this psalm. He would have prayed, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. He would have prayed, we will rejoice in your salvation. He would have prayed, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Yet David praises us not for himself. He praises for his coming Messiah. He praises us for his God, his Redeemer who would have his own day of affliction, his Redeemer who, who would be saved from the grave, his Redeemer who provided salvation. So we see in Psalm 20 a prayer of the Old Testament church looking past David and praying for the coming Messiah. And just as Israel prayed for their coming King, so we too must pray for King Jesus It might seem like an odd thing for us to to pray for King Jesus. After all, you might ask, why should I pray for God? Does God really need my prayers? Well, God certainly doesn't need your prayers. He is self-sufficient and entirely independent. But he does command us to pray for him. And this is something you already likely do on a regular basis. When the disciples came to Jesus, asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray Jesus told them to pray, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come." That was that? We're praying for the establishment of the Father's kingdom, a kingdom that he has now bequeathed. He's now given to his Son when he ascended up on high. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for King Jesus. We are praying that he would be endowed with all the glory and honor that he deserves. This is a prayer taken up in Revelation 5.13. where the words, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There, the saints pray that he would be victorious over all over all his and our enemies. In short, we're praying, as what I've always very much appreciated with the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, we're praying that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed. This is a a prayer taken up also in Revelation 6, verse 10, by, by the martyrs who are under the altar, who cry with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. As we are praying for the destruction of darkness, we are praying that King Jesus' kingdom of grace would advance throughout the world. We are praying that that white horse of the gospel would triumph, that it would continue going forth, conquering and to conquer. We're also praying that the kingdom of glory would be quick to come. Doesn't Revelation end with that prayer? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The second petition of the Lord's Prayer greatly informs how we can see and interpret Psalm 20, how we, as God's people, in the 21st century, can can use these words to pray for the establishment of God's kingdom. And amid our spiritual warfare, singing this psalm by faith, grants us courage, it reminds us that we do indeed have a king. We are his subjects, and we are desirous of his victory and his glory. We encourage to fight for his glory and advancements. Now, Christ's kingdom was in its infancy in the days of David. Still needed to be established, and it would be established in the day of trouble, in the day of distress. And how fitting then that this is where our text begins. Notice where, notice verse 1 of our text, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. And here, the Old Testament saints prayed for the Messiah knowing that he would suffer. Just think how often this would be drilled into your mind if you were an Israelite. You would sin. Then you would go to the priest at the tabernacle and you would bring a lamb or some other animal. And the priest would say to you, this lamb is going to be killed as an offering for your sin. And you would see the lamb there having your sins placed upon it. Its blood shed on your behalf. This this lamb that never did anything wrong to you. This lamb that is spotless and, and pure. You see it its blood leaving its body and it dying. It's suffering as a penalty as a sacrifice for your sins, and then you would see it consumed in fire. very visible declaration that the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, is indeed going to suffer just like that lamb suffered. All the while this is going on, the faithful priest is instructing you, look past that lamb, look to the coming Messiah, the one who will offer that one final sacrifice for your sins. If there's one man who experienced trouble in this life, if there's one man who experienced a day of trouble, it was Jesus Christ. The moment he was born, he knew poverty. He was laid in a feeding trough. And this poverty followed him all his life, such that while foxes have holes and birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah is, is one who is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That was the life of our Savior. A life of trouble, not just one day of trouble, but days and years of trouble, ultimately reaching their climax on the day when Christ was offered up at Calvary. There, Christ fulfilled what Jeremiah said in, in, in Lamentations 3. Christ was able to say, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Christ was the man who saw affliction. There on Calvary, Christ cried out, I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men despised by the people. The Old Testament church prayed for the Messiah that in his day of trouble, the name of, of the God of Jacob would defend him. What a prayer that is. A prayer that God would be faithful to his covenant, that just as God was faithful in Jacob's day of distress, when Jacob was fleeing from his family because his brother wanted to kill him, just as God was faithful in preserving Jacob's life and blessing him. So the Old Testament church is praying here that God would preserve and be faithful to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the name of the God of Jacob would defend him. Now it should be noted that David is not having some superstitious thought that the mere mention of the name of God would afford some protection. Just saying the name of Jesus is Using that like uh, a lucky charm isn't what's implied here. The name of God is as a declaration of who God is, of his character. David understands that the name of the God of Jacob refers to the character of his God. This comes out in the next several verses where we read, May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. For God to send help from the sanctuary was for God to send his personal presence. Sanctuary refers to the place of God's particular dwelling. We spoke this morning in Sunday school about the Shekinah glory what is referred to here. a place where God very particularly and specially dwells. And for help to come from the sanctuary is for help, for God's personal help to come. For God to to personally come and deliver his people. So in there we we see that this is also a prayer for, for God himself to come down. God himself to come down and save his people. As we sing these words this month we need to remembering need to be remembering Jesus' day of trouble. We ought to draw encouragement in our own spiritual warfare remembering that day of trouble because God did defend Jesus. Jesus was not uh, allowed to remain on the cross. He did not remain in the grave. God would not allow his Holy One to see a corruption, but he raised him from the dead. God remembered Jesus' offerings and sacrifice. Not sacrifice for his own sins, but sacrifices for for the sins of his people. and, And Jesus' fulfilling all righteousness. God remembered and accepted that. And because God the Father did this for his anointed one. We who trust in the God of Jacob today can be greatly encouraged in our days of trouble. I spoke last week of our need to suffer much affliction in this life. We must suffer many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Yet here we are told of one who has suffered affliction in our place and because he has suffered, he is able to help in our days of affliction in, in, a ways, in ways that we can't possibly comprehend. So as we endure the onslaught of the enemy, we can stand strong, not in our own strength, but in the strength, the one who has seen affliction, in the strength that our King grants us. And the help that God gives in our days of trouble means that we can truly rejoice in his salvation. Psalm 20 isn't just a prayer for help in the day of trouble, but it's also a prayer of praise. Notice verse 5. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners Jesus has endured the day of trouble. But the day of trouble is over and done with. No more does Jesus have to endure a day of trouble. His triumph through his sorrow and grief. A sorrow and grief he experienced on our behalf. And because of that, we no longer have to pray that God would answer him in his day of trouble. Instead, we can pray that God would grant him according to all his desires and fulfill his purpose. The victory has been won in Christ. The curse of sin and death has been destroyed, and now we can pray for the growth and progress of the kingdom of Christ. Psalm 20 is ultimately a prayer that Christ would receive the glory that he is due. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this prayer deals with two young Moravian missionaries. These young men had heard of an island in the West Indies that had some 3,000 slaves on it. But their master was a cruel and a wicked man, a complete reprobate who, who wouldn't allow any Christian missionaries to go to that island to evangelize them. He said, no, these are my slaves. I have no desire and no uh, uh, wish that any pastor would ever share the gospel with them. He even went so so far as to say, well, if any uh, pastor or preacher or, or missionary ever lands on this island, we're not, because he gets shipwrecked, we're going to keep him in a completely different house until somebody can come and, and rescue him. This man was steadfast and resolved that these slaves would never hear of Jesus Christ. And when these two Moravian missionaries heard this story, they decided to sell themselves into a life of slavery to this man. They did this so that they might have the opportunity to witness the beauties of the gospel to these slaves. We might ask, well, why why would you do that? Why would you sell your life into slavery? You might think, well, they did this so that they might receive some glory for their sacrifice so that man might praise them. Oh, here are these, these great Christian people willing to do this. Yet they cared not for their own praise. As they sailed off. They would likely never ever see family or friends again. They would never receive any praise ever again. I think, yeah, they, they cared in, in, in some ways for these, the souls of these slaves. And they loved them enough to go and die for them. Yet they had no knowledge as they sailed off whether these slaves would ever come to a knowledge of Christ might abandon them. They might even laugh at them and and put them to death themselves. These missionaries ultimately desired one thing. They desired the glory of Christ. And this becomes uh, very clearly evident when they leave the continent of Europe. As the ship sailed away from the dock and their families and friends are mourning and weeping that they're entering a life of slavery and hardships. These missionaries spread their hands and, and they shout to their weeping friends and family. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. These missionaries are desirous of one thing, that the glory of Christ would be known by these slaves. And this is ultimately our prayer as we sing this psalm. That Christ would receive all the glory. That he would be granted his heart's desire. That all power and honor would be given to him. We pray that the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb who showed us such love that he laid down his life for us, would be given the honor he deserves. That his will, his commands would be done by us on earth as they are done by the angels in heaven. That his name would be hallowed in our thoughts, our words and our actions. That his name would be reverenced by every single person of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is our prayer, and it's not a prayer we pray with hopelessness. See, there's many discouraged Christians today. Christians who are ready to give in the towel. Christians who see the unbelieving world and think, well, people are are just too wicked for there to be any hope. And yet, what is the response of faith to the victory Christ has already won on the cross? The response of faith is in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. We have confidence that we are going to win the battle. We have confidence that God is powerful, God is mighty, God has won the victory. And let us now, as faithful soldiers, go to war for him. Let us set up our banners in his name. We should be proud of the fact that we are Christians. This is something we, we should hide, and yet we can often do that. We can often hide our faith. People ask you what you did over the weekend, and you might come up with anything other than the fact, oh, I, I went to church. So we are, are ashamed of that. I don't want you to think I'm, I'm different or I'm, I'm, I'm weird that I would go to church. Yet, should we not rejoice in our salvation? Should we not rejoice in the name of our God? Should we not, in the name of, of the Lord, set up our banners? This is not what Paul does when he says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Rather than be ashamed, we ought to boldly and courageously make his glory known. Such courage starts with removing all of our idols. And this is uh, where the psalm uh, starts to wind down. Notice uh, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist is saying, I have no need to trust in chariots and horses. but There's only one I need to trust in, and His name is the Lord. His name is Jehovah. His name is our God. must remove all hope and trust in others from our lives and instead trust in, in full strength and reliance upon the Lord. For it's from God that we have the victory. We can often make the mistake of trusting in means rather than trusting in the Lord. Now It would have been very easy for the Israelite to say, oh, I, I'm trusting in God and I, I believe God uses means. And so I'm going to go and and use the means of a horse and a chariot to accomplish God's purposes. We've got to, after all, make faithful use of the means that God has given. Yet Israel was specifically commanded not to do that. They were to trust solely in the Lord. And our trust must be in God alone. Now, I, I want to clarify that and, and, and say it's not wrong for us to use legitimate means that God has given. God has indeed given us various means to help in our spiritual warfare. One of those means is the church. One of those means is, is other Christians to support and encourage us. But there can sometimes be a, a great danger when those means become the ground or, or the foundation of our warfare. I'll just give one example. The man who, who struggles with pornography might, might say, well, I want to get rid of this sin in my life. And he says, well, the means to that is the accountability software. I'm just going to block every, every single website and be accountable to somebody, and bam, I'm going to have no trouble with this sin ever again. You'll soon find out that well, he can have the software. He can have the accountability but that's him trusting in horses and chariots. There's a moment he has some other device. The moment he's put into a compromising situation, he finds himself horrendously tempted. He's not placed his trust in the Lord. He's placed his trust in the means. Must trust. In the Lord alone, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, we the people of God, will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, don't get me wrong, such now, in that example. Software can be a great help. It can be certainly a means to our sanctification. The danger is always that it becomes the source of our sanctification. The source of sanctification in the Christian life must be God. Westminster Shorter Chasm, you kids will remember. Uh, What is sanctification? The work of sanctification is what the Holy Spirit does within us. Sanctification is the work of God's Spirit in our heart. Some might trust in horses and chariots. Some trust in outward means, but the one who trusts in God knows true strength and victory. Isn't this what Psalm 20 hammers into us? Hammers into us again and again. Grace and strength in the Lord. Psalm is, May the Lord, may the name of our God, may He send you help from the sanctuary. May He remember May He grant you according to your heart's desire. May the Lord fulfill all your position. Uh, all your petitions. This is trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone. No trust in the man. No trust in princes, but trust in the Lord. For the Lord is strength. And so as you seek to live for the glory of God, as you engage in spiritual warfare against the flesh, the world, and the devil, as you seek to advance the kingdom of Christ, sing this war song that God has so graciously given to his church for their strength, their encouragement in the day of battle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the living word that you give us. Lord, what a wonder. It's even hard for us to comprehend that a psalm that would have been sung on the battlefield thousands of years ago still has meaning and value for us. Lord, as we engage in spiritual warfare as your people, Lord, may we draw strength and encouragement from this psalm as we sing it. Lord, strengthen us that we might trust in you and in you alone. And grant, Lord, that we would seek the glory of Christ in all that we do.